and welcome to a very special episode of Changes with me, Annie McManus. In 2021, as countries around the world began to ease COVID-19 restrictions, iconic nighttime venues all over the globe reopened their doors to welcome back DJs and dancers. Now, there were joyous moments throughout the summer and autumn, but the year of reopening wasn't quite the return to normal we all hoped for. While technically open for business, many dance music venues are still facing pandemic-related debts that threaten to close their doors for good. Some have been passed over for crucial reopening grants from local governments, and others, especially in the EU, have been affected by more lockdowns. In 2022, dance music scenes all over the globe are fighting for survival and let's be clear, we need them to survive for reasons we explore in this episode. A 2022 industry growth report by two hospitality-focused software companies, Stampede and Storekit, showed that in 2010, there were just over 10,000 registered clubs. But in 2021, there were just under 7,000. Now, data analysers predict that there could be soon less than 5,000 clubs in the UK. That is half the clubs that there were 10 years ago. That is a huge change and something I want to explore in this episode. So you know, this episode is sponsored by Amazon Music. They came to me because they have provided some reopening grants to help support venues during this time and they wanted a conversation around that to highlight some of the issues facing club culture. I was really into the challenge actually and there was one person I thought of immediately when talking about nightclubs and that is the American DJ, producer, musician and radio host known as The Blessed Madonna. Real name Maria, she aptly owns a record label called We Still Believe. She went to her first rave at 14, an immediate convert. Her life became all about music and raving. She went on to be a resident DJ at one of America's most important nightclubs called the Smart Bar in Chicago. At the time, the other resident was the godfather of house himself, Frankie Knuckles. As a result of that smart bar residency, she got asked to play the iconic Berghain nightclub in Berlin and got herself a passport out of America, literally and figuratively, and has been smashing the biggest nightclubs and the biggest festivals over in Europe and the world ever since. In 2016, she became the first woman to be named Mixed Mags DJ of the Year. And during the pandemic, when clubbing wasn't an option, she produced a Dua Lipa remix album called Club Future Nostalgia, working on tracks with people like Madonna and Missy Elliott. You also might recognise her voice from that song that was all over the radio last summer and autumn, Fred Again's We've Lost Dancing. Remember, what comes next will be marvellous. In this conversation, myself and Maria will share the history and the joy and the absolute indisputable importance of the cherished spaces that we call nightclubs. Enter the podcast, The Blessed Madonna. Maria, The Blessed Madonna, it is an absolute honor to have you on Changes. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here and long time listener, first time caller. Listen, this is going to be a legendary conversation. I can feel it already. We're talking today about nightclubs, why they matter, how the economy has changed over the years and um, your experiences of nightclub and your expertise of nightclubs as well. And I'm going to kick off with a very rudimentary but very important question, which is why do nightclubs matter? Well, 
nightclubs matter for a lot of reasons, and it depends on where you're coming from, why they might matter. For some people, I think nightclubs are crossing spaces where different cultures and people with different kinds of experiences can engage one another in ways where the normal rules of society may be temporarily suspended. I think that's a big part of Chicago House. Nightclubs are a big part of youth culture in, in general. Literally, you, depending on where you live, you turn a certain age and you're allowed to do this thing. And so they are, as much as anything that we have around the world, a codified rite of passage. There's the time when you, have to, when you want to go to the nightclub and you can't. There's the time that you sneak into the nightclub when you're not supposed to be there. And then finally you're allowed to go. And then maybe even at a certain point you go, oh, I don't know if I want to be the old guy at the club. So <laughs> there's, there's a marking of time. So much of it has to do with rules, though. Yeah. Um, touching on Chicago, though, those early warehouse parties, tell us a little bit about kind of what they did for the culture and, you know, inadvertently became for the people who went there. Like there's a lot of comparisons, isn't there, between nightclubs and the church and those are kind of parallels of the crowd being a congregation. And can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's a cliche because it's true. <laughs> it, you, <laughs> you know, uh, Frankie Knuckles, there's a great quote from him about it. I won't butcher it here, but it, it starts in the very beginning that people feel this kind of crossover between those worlds. And in particular, I think that nightclubs often offer a secularized version of the um, transcendent religious experience. And that's important mm. because it means that that experience is offered to people who may not even have a conception of God or may not want a conception of God or don't come from that point of view, but can still have these sort of liminal spiritual experiences in the same place. Mm. And it's also the idea of those rooms being sanctuaries, as you inferred, like to the outside world, like a safe space to be exactly who you are without societal constraints or boundaries, right? Yeah, I think that, that it's one of the great paradoxes of dance music in that that is absolutely true. And then it's absolutely false sometimes. Uh, there, there is a kind of yeah. tension between the utopianism and then when the real world kicks in. In our desire to reclaim very rightly, the lost history of house music and its queer roots. People who embody those idyllic utopian values of house music. And there are also a lot of people who are early in the house music scene who are very homophobic and very mm. religious. Even though people would enter the same spaces to have that fellowship, there are gaps even inside of it. And and then there's people who are, you know, there's many closeted gay men in, in the beginning of house music, and that's a part of it too. So I think the story is mm. nightclubs do all of that. Mm, mm. Hey, you talked about sneaking into nightclubs as being a kind of a thing that people did. I wanted to ask about you as a teenager who you were then, what, what were you like then, and kind of your first experiences of a nightclub, what you remember about that? 
So I, I come into nightclubs through the rave scene. There are, are intersections between them, but they, in my mind, were very different worlds. There used to be these t-shirts yeah. that looked like the raid bug spray that said, rave kills clubs dead. You know, and so there right. was this kind of antagonism. And for those who don't know, Maria, sorry to interrupt, like how how so? How were they different? What was the contrasting element? Well, raves were, whereas nightclubs had cues and guest lists and dress codes and all of that kind of stuff, raves were seen as, at least in America, and I can't speak for the UK, but as the kind of op- sure. opposition to that. You know, you were going to come as you are and mm. you can stay all night and do whatever you want. And there's no rules. And whereas in nightclubs, there's a lot of rules. And when I was a kid, mm. we saw ourselves very much as like, oh, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but then. Full they, raver. Oh, yeah, totally. Then, of course, like as rave venues dried up, they started to kind of want to like rent out nightclubs to have sure like events. yeah same thing happened in the uk uh, right yeah. so i can remember like there's this one club or venue i guess in nashville tennessee called the cannery which i think was literally a cannery at one point and it's just this massive mm. kind of warehousey kind of venue or whatever and uh at least at the time it needed some repair which may, meant that it was ideal for a, a perfect for, for a, yeah, it, yeah if you were like a struggling venue or a restaurant or a dentist's office that had closed and you needed some money, you know, that was when we would slide in there. So, but they still had the rules of you had to be 21 because it's 21 in America. It's not even 18. And I was 15, 16 years old. So how's that work? Wow. Right. Well, they would have this thing where you could, you could be in there all ages until midnight and then you had to leave and they would do this sweep. And kick out all the kids, which is crazy. So what I would have to do is, I used to sell, this is when I was selling mixtapes and t-shirts and stuff. I would either have to hide under the booth, which had like a, it had like a, like a tablecloth on it. So I would get underneath the booth with my little teeny tiny self, or I would borrow the ID of one of the 25 other girls who had this haircut, who was actually 21 it was passable. There were a lot of us that looked very similar. And so I'd be like, no, this is yeah. me. I'm good. You know? Yeah. And so those experiences, that total freedom, that kind of feeling of law- lawlessness, of, of, you know, being able to do what you want and experience all these older people and this new music. What did those experiences do for you as a teenager? I think there were good things and there were bad things. I mean, the good part is that it gave me my entire life. Uh, you know, I can remember a high school guidance counselor and my father both saying, you're not going to be able to rave for a living. Well, clearly that's not true. I think you'll find. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Chop one up for Marge on that. Um, I I had a guidance counselor who said that, uh, if I didn't find a career path, I was going to be on a, at a bus stops. And, uh, I remember when I was on tour with the chemical brothers that there was a an advertisement for our tour on a bus stop and i was like well Mm. you're right about Mm. that part but i was not sleeping there beautiful irony Uh, yeah so i mean in that sense i think that you know it kind of gave me everything i i i love to do many things whether it was making music or dancing or whatever it was all of the sides throwing events 
this has been the one compelling central mechanism of my imagination as a human being. And mm. that has persisted. On the downside, I guess, like, I got in a, a bit young. You know, I was out on my sure. own by the time I was 16. I had my own yeah. my own house, and I wasn't hanging out with other 16-year-olds. It was all, like, 22, 23, 24. Sure. And I lived through it, but I look back, and maybe I, I just as much as anything, maybe I wouldn't have. Anything could have happened yeah. to me. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think there's yeah. been a lot. Incredibly vulnerable. That's right. Yeah. I, I, and I think that there's less now, uh, but there was mm. a lot of kind of collateral damage from being in club culture from way too young. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. It's testament to the power of, you know, the influence of, of the experience over you that you stayed in it and that you wanted to stay in it and that you were compelled to. I'm interested in what parts of it was it the social aspect? Was it the music? Like, w what parts of it made you compelled to stay in that world? I, I would almost talk about an obsessive love affair. It has always won any contest between any other opposing force. Like, I mean, I would have a day job, but if something happened and I needed to be somewhere to DJ in the early years... I would figure it out. And if the day job went away, then that was what it was. Every relationship up until the one that trapped me for good. I mean, I had a starter marriage before this that fully went down because of DJing. It's like a great romance that is maybe slightly toxic at times, but also like the greatest passionate, fiery, obsessive, singular thing. I'm almost never at a loss for words, but when I when I try to talk about what it what it was in those early years that pulled me in and and created that obsession, it's so visceral that it's hard right. to even explain what it is, I can sure. remember the first party that I went to, the first time I was ever in like a real kind of clubbing environment when I was 14 years old. And I, I was into dance music before that because of, because of my mom and my stepdad who, who loved Pet Shop Boys and New Order and all kinds of stuff like that, mm. Crystal Waters. But I had not had the in-person experience and the guy that I was dating at the time took me to a rave we had to drive an hour and a half to Cincinnati and the party was called Sonic 2. And when I tell you that I lost all interest in my friends, I, I can remember like trying to talk to them. We were like drinking smart drinks and stuff, which really tells you how old I am. And, you know, just feeling pulled like that tractor beam in Star Wars mm. away from them and to the speaker. And... I don't even know how long I danced. I mean, it was just, I can remember what I wore. I had this little blue velvet jacket and this little mini skirt thing and I'm bopping around. And <laughs> I had no interest in these boys, none. It was just like, it's what I imagine being a drug addict is like. Mm. Absolute, total, physical compulsion. That was really... I guess the seed of things in time, 
all of my people, all of my friends, my even my closest chosen family members all come from that world. And even though many of them are, are actual adults now, we all came from that world. <laughs> you know, they may have gone on to be doctors and lawyers and nurses and whatever. Sure. But even those people that I keep with me all these years later, there is that shared language. My husband also is, he's exactly like I am. You know, he's the most, mm. for him it's techno though. He's, it, he's like Mr. Mm. Mr. Hard Techno. But that shared language I don't think I ever could have gotten married to somebody who wasn't a part of that culture. It's it's the language mm. that I speak at this at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm the same as you. I remember exactly what I wore to the nightclub for the first time. I remember like it's so visceral because it has such a profound effect on you, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I felt like the, I felt like nothing would be the same again afterwards. I was like, that's it. That's it. Nothing's ever going to be the same again. And I saved everything. I saved everything. Every flyer, every laminate. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Going back to the very beginning, I had my little rave box, you know, oh. I and I still have all of it. I like, I mean, my flyer collection from the 90s is crazy. And every <laughs> single one of those, I was, like, it all seemed so precious and important and I, I wasn't like that with anything else. But those are the things I was like, yeah. this is the most important thing that has ever happened to me. And I used to have anxiety about like, oh my God, what if this ends? What will I do? Well, <laughs> funny you should mention that because it did. We should fast forward to the fact that you became a professional DJ. You became a resident at the iconic Smart Bar in Chicago. You then got your, literally got a passport out of America on account of you being a DJ and you played at the iconic Berghain in Berlin. You became Mixed Mag DJ of the Year. You, you know, you have your brand. You, you've literally, you know, made this incredibly successful career out of your passion for DJing. And then that all ended in March 2020 and you were a touring DJ you were a working gal you were around the world on a regular DJing and suddenly everything stops I want to talk in the conversation today about the effects of the pandemic on nightclubbing you know what's at stake here because it does feel like there's a lot at stake it does feel like we're on an we're on a kind of precipice of what the future of nightclubbing and the industry can look like in the UK and First of all, like just in terms of your experience of those venues in Europe that do treat their nightclubs like cultural institutions. So let's talk about Berghain. You know, Germany's just changed the legal status of of certain nightclubs from entertainment venues to cultural institutions. So Berghain in Berlin is has got the same legal status as a museum, which to you and me makes perfect sense. Um, but that's not the case here in the UK. What do you think about that aspect of of kind of the status of nightclubs and your experience of those, I suppose? Well, I think the failure to recognize nightclubs as important cultural institutions is just a, it's a failure of, of imagination. There's no one that would look at the Cotton Club or, or the Apollo or, 
right. any of those places and say that's not a cultural institution. It's lazy, grown-up thinking. <laughs> so to me, it's just crazy to think that anybody would not understand that. But of course, that is just the case. It will be to the detriment of any culture that fails mm. to be introspective enough to see that. I mean, Smart Bar is turning 40 years old this year, right? Smart. What an achievement. Yeah, Smart Bar opened the same week as Hacienda. Wow. And has been wow. open consistently as an underground nightclub with one owner since then. Wow. You know, you've got Sylvester in the lobby serenading people upstairs. You've got, you know, Frankie Knuckles' last birthday party. You've got the club opening with Frankie as the opening DJ on the first night. I went back and looked at the calendar of all, like, back years and years and years and years to see just who had played. It's like, oh, well, this weekend we had three chairs. You know, it was two, <laughs> 200 people showed up. Like, you know, just a casual Thursday night. And, and that's, that's how it is here, too. I mean, there's just so much incredible richness that people take it for granted. There will be a time when we will look back at the things that we had before the pandemic and how many clubs were open and how many we let fail and be mm. like, what were we doing? There's a quote here from Michael Kill, chief exec of the Nighttime Industries Association. He says, nightclubs throughout this pandemic have been disproportionately targeted as high risk settings without substantive evidence, almost ostracized publicly. The government's lack of understanding of this sector has led to ill-informed decision-making and businesses being marginalized or lost forever. Maria, why are clubs last on the list? Well, I think that there's a, uh, without getting myself in too much hot water here, you know, there's a puritanical aspect of capitalist culture in general. I think that there's a lot of people that look at this as an opportunity to, to do to the world what was done to New York City, to the sort of mm. Disneyfication. The Rudy Giuliani years. Yeah, yeah, right. The sort of Disneyfication of of city life under the awning of safety. Nightclubs are dangerous for many reasons. You really have to look at the actual science of it. And that, yeah. that for me is something that, that very few people actually took the time to do. I mean, I was involved in the, the pilot sure. event. First dance back. Right. Yeah. So we got all this information and found the infection rate wasn't any higher than anywhere else and helped develop the protocols for reopening. Mm. And then mm. it's like, well, what was that information for? Mm. Mm. Where, whereas, you know, you have people who are having, you know, these small gatherings, which have no enforcement, no protocol of any kind, are largely unregulated and operate under, without any supervision. And yeah. that's where people are getting sick. Yeah, exactly. When it's not regulated and it's that's the thing, it's kind of going to happen anyway. So it's 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 acknowledging that. I wonder, is it something to do with the fact that nightclub industries, because they are like a booming economy in the UK, people come here to go clubbing. You know, that's that's a fact. Yeah. So it's not like it's indisputable that you, you can't dismiss them on account of that. And um, they, they do a wonders for the UK economy. Eighty six thousand jobs have been lost in the nighttime sector due to COVID-19. So people are losing livelihoods mm -hmm. um, because of the fact that clubs are last on the list. 
And I I keep wondering like why it is. And I, the only thing I can get to is just because they're not taken seriously as culture in the same way as ballet or the opera or theater or whatever. And it's just, it's a class thing. It must be an age thing as well. The people who are making the laws are, don't go to clubs anymore. They just don't, they don't, they don't take youth culture as something that's of value and needing to be preserved. And I think youth culture is dangerous. Not from yeah. a, not from a, I don't mean that in a biological sense. I mean, in general, the kids are all right. <laughs> you know, this has been an incredible couple of years in terms of youth culture in general, from Black Lives Matter to ecological mm. protests, all of that stuff. And nightclubs are a place where those discussions happen. Not always, sometimes just pure hedonism, whatever, but Youth culture in general is dangerous. Also, probably it's easier to benefit from more mainstream businesses from a financial perspective. There's an aspect where the culture is dismissed for all the greatest hits of why it's always about race, mm. class, gender, sexuality. Mm. Power. Yeah, power. You know, when we say culture, what do we mean? It is about culture. And then when you start to unpack the layers of that, there's some some pretty nasty business in there. Maria, how was the pandemic for you personally? How did you cope with having to stop? Well, uh, you know, it it had its ups and it had its downs uh, for me because, well, I was sick during the pandemic, not because with COVID, mm. but I, I had been yeah. sick for a while. And um, so I had that going on at the same time and there was a lot of kind of confusion about what was going on. And so that was like a a balancing act. And because of that, I was shielding the entire time. Sure. Wow. For over intense for over a year. I don't think I left my house 10 times, even like to go to the park. So I feel like that could have gone one of two ways, which was either that my husband and I would love each other more or we would physically kill each other with our hands. <laughs> and the good news is that we've, we found out after seven years of barely being in the same room that we loved each other very much. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you guys. I'm very happy. I'm relieved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> same. Uh, and then also... Um, Everybody was trying to kind of balance, like, all the life stuff with how to navigate the pandemic, and that was certainly the case for me. I had just kind of been running constantly, so being at home and being able to kind of finally deal with being sick was a good thing, Mm. ultimately. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Because I got better, and... yeah. uh, I don't think that would have happened if I had not been forced into that situation. But on the other hand, all the things that happen in various corners of life to other people happened to me. My dad died. I wasn't there for it. I had to do the hospital. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I had to do the hospital thing over Zoom. <laughs> you know, oh, it was just God. there were that whole thing that people. But that yeah. in a way, I think I feel tied to the rest of the world by that experience. Yeah, of course. Yeah. A lot of times 
I think when you're a nightlife person, you feel like your experiences day to day are not relatable to other people. Your friends are like, oh, sure. well, you know, I went to the PTA meeting and uh, then I <laughs> went and had a, you know, brunch with the girls and did this. And I'm like, oh, well, you yes. know, I'm in Istanbul and tomorrow I'm going <laughs> to, you know, it's like this unrelatable yeah. thing. With the pandemic, there were so many things that were just like everybody else. Yeah. You know, I tried all the little house on the prairie crafts. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. Um, at, well, at least you know now. I do. I still hate <laughs> to cook. I don't want to bake bread ever. I, I killed some sourdough starter. My embroidery's okay, but, you know, I was not cut out for that world at all. But the good thing that happened was that my production life got really serious and I built a studio at home and yeah. that all changed for me pretty much like overnight. Yeah. I mean, being on the radio throughout and interviewing artists every night, um, it, it felt like there was a kind of pattern in that initially when it all happened, there was a kind of inertia, a kind of like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. I can't feel anything. I'm not inspired. I don't know what to do here. Um, and then as time progressed, there was a kind of realization of this new space and new time. And then this kind of lead into experimentation, trying stuff they've never done before. As you said, building studios, giving this stuff that's always been in the back of your head, real time and real resource. And I think it's made for a lot of excellent music. I mean, it has for sure in your case. And I think, you know, maybe it's a good thing in that regard, but going back to the DJ community specifically, this kind of two, three years off, well, less, I suppose, in the UK, off DJing, how do you think that affected the DJ community? And what did you see in terms of the changes that took place? Like, if any, of course. Well, some of it was kind of business as usual, like the second that things came back, kind of seeing the same yeah. people doing the same crap. I, I, I think that a lot of people expected this like giant change and I was like, eh, I don't know about all that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the one thing I would say is that in general, a lot of people were like, I don't think I ever want to be on world tour forever again. Yes. A lot of recalibrations in terms of what they will and won't do. Because I think in the, in, in the industry, it's very easy to just get on that hamster wheel of touring. And as you say, there's always an Istanbul. There's always a Paris. There's always a whatever, a show that you can do. And then you kind of, your life becomes nomadic, right? Yeah, Completely. and it wasn't good for me in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't good for my family. It wasn't good for my marriage. I forgot to have kids. You know, there was a lot of that kind of thing. Like, whoa, I turned sure. around and it's like, I've been on the road for eight years straight and I forgot to do any real life stuff. Yeah. And I was kind of already yeah. cued for that because I had come from the rave scene in the Midwest where we were like that in our own way. Like, you drove between cities five six seven eight hours every weekend for me i slid right into that i was like oh a different city every weekend yeah sure that's fine <laughs> and it was until it wasn't like I, there was a period of time where i forgot how to sleep and my health got yeah. really bad and uh, my husband and i were getting along fine but i don't think my dogs recognized me and yeah. being put in time out was good for me in that respect yeah and you um inadvertently became the voice of a lot of people's frustrations and anxiety and optimism during this by 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 having a chat with Fred again over FaceTime and him turning 
some of your gorgeous words into a song that really touched the hearts of a lot of people. So We've Lost Dancing was a song. Tell me about that experience, please. Honestly, one of the weirdest things that has ever happened to me <laughs> in my entire life. Genuinely. You became a pop star. Oh, so after the lockdown ended, I was I went to I went to Denmark and I was finishing a show and I closed out this festival. It was their first festival back. And at the end they were yelling something and I thought, are they yelling something at me in Danish? I don't speak Danish. I was like, what 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 are they mm. saying? And he was like, they're saying we've lost dancing. And it was like thousands of people and I didn't know the guy was like you know that record was like an actual number one pop record here. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I mean, I was like totally disconnected from that because yeah. I was in my own little thing. Yeah. I mean, I could see it like when people would tag me in videos and things like that. You would think that I would have been like, oh, I'm going to pay really close attention to this. But I kind of just like tuned it out. And then when yeah. I left the house, it was like, whoa. Like the first time that I started... Oh, I knew there was going to be a dog interruption here. Listen, we love the dogs. Have, Bring them on. I have been brought a dog bone here. Thank you, buddy. Oh, good. You're a very good dog. Uh, thank you for the offering. Thank you for the yeah. offering. You're a very good dog. Now go lay down. But yeah, when the first time I left the house after that, and then also I'm sure the Club Future Nostalgia was a compounding factor, the being recognized on the street thing yeah, was totally different. I had not been in like a nightclub just as a civilian and I went to go see Girls of the Internet with Chrissy, which was a great show. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I had really been anywhere like that and it was crazy. We mentioned the first dance back, so this pilot scheme um, Youssef in Liverpool kind of orchestrated this big club and um, it, it got a lot of press because it was officially the first clubbing experience that had been allowed since lockdown in March. And this was at the end of April. So this was over a year of the nighttime industry being completely shut down. Um, and you played after Jada G. And of course you had to play that track because it was the definitive track of, of the year, you know. How did that feel? It's the only time I've ever played the track. I've never played it any other time. And I played the the long version from Fred doing it live, which has more of the the conversation in it. And yeah. I mean, I was very emotional. I walked in and immediately burst into tears. Yeah. Right away. And um, Ellie, my manager, was crying and Jada was crying. All, like everybody was just that's what I remember was there was a lot of crying and at the same time I was very much starting to get very sick and so I just remember the the physical difficulty of it and being you know DJing is very physical so it it brought that into resolution too like oh my god I'm around these people and I, like I'm trying to do normal stuff and I can really tell I'm not feeling great and yeah so sure. it was kind of like there was it was like and but then there was the joy of it which kind of took me out of it it was yeah. it was all it was it was everything all at once and all the feelings totally and also I mean the crowd was just so nuts like I remember there was one part <laughs> where I was playing and like a mosh pit broke out like a full on, <laughs> honest to God, 
like circle pit in the that, middle. That's a year of pent up frustration right there. Oh yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of people who had turned eighteen during lockdown. Yeah, I never experienced a nightclub before. Never, and to watch them having that experience mm. all at once was just very heavy for me because I felt very alive and half dead and terrified and hopeful and worried because I was double vaccinated by that point already, which was good, mm. but, I, but worried, like, is the vaccine going to work? You know, am I going to get mm. sick? You know, I, there was a lot of like, just kind of internal panic, but also yeah. total joy. Like everybody felt. Yeah. The first time somebody hugged me, <laughs> a stranger, Wow. I was like, <sighs> yeah. And he just grabbed me. It was just a guy. Yeah. And I, w I had been, I mean, I had gone from bleaching the groceries. Mm. Because mm. if I had gotten COVID before sure. the vaccine. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So I go from bleaching the groceries. I don't leave the house at all. Vadim's leaving the house in full PPE with rubber gloves and stuff. Wow. Yeah. Only occasionally. Mainly we have groceries delivered to the front porch and left there. Yeah. So you go from that to being in a crowded club in Liverpool getting hugged by strangers. That's right. And it <laughs> Switch. terrified me. And yeah. also during the time that this had all happened the general awareness of me, you know, this enormous record had happened. I've done something with Dua Lipa who has become, you know, kind of like the biggest pop star in the world over the break. Mm. And I mean, she mm. was already huge, but to be attached to that in any way, shape or form, it just my whole level of um, engagement with the world had gone up. So, people treat you differently. Like they grab you and they touch you and people were like that with me anyways, but that all went up a thousand percent sure. in that period of time. So it was even more and I, it was genuinely terrifying. Mm. Let's talk about the future, you know, since that happened in April, festivals started up again in the summer of 2021. Clubbing is back as per normal. But have you noticed a difference now? You know, now it's supposed to be fully back compared to how it was in terms of the UK. Well, yeah, for sure. And I, I think that anybody who is uh, doing ticket counts right now would tell you that there's a difference. There was a big surge. Yeah. And then there's kind of a leveling off. A lot of events have struggled uh, at any normal event, like, you know, maybe 10, 15% of people who buy tickets don't show up. And it's been up to like 40, 50% for some people now. Anybody really involved in nightlife will tell you that most of your money isn't even made in ticket sales. <laughs> you know, it's made in bottles of water and beer and, and all of those things. And so when you have a certain percentage of people that don't show up, then that hurts everything and and then on the other hand the events that go off are completely insane 
<laughs> you know, absolutely bonkers. The, the first show that I played back in New York with Mike Servito in the ruins at Knockdown was one of the most amazing events that I've been a part of. New York is crazy. Yeah. Smart Bar is crazy. I played mm. The Cause here, and it was crazy. And some of the festivals you really feel the you feel the difference in some of them you don't the early summer events were the fullest the most exciting and then there was kind of a leveling off and by the time you got to winter a lot of people had covid yeah yeah but we're worried about covid again there's some terrifying stats of um you know nightclubbing stats for that month of december and the amount of money that was lost in, in the economy insane um in a world, I mean, it's always been a world of pandemics, but, it, it, you know, it, fresh off the wake of this pandemic and with the awareness that there could be more and there could be new strains and, you know, without wanting to be really pessimistic about it, but more realist, you know, how do you see the future of live music and clubbing? How do you see it evolving in this world where everything can stop and, you know, the economy can be compromised at any point? Well, it's going to be tough. You know, I think anybody yeah. that has any kind of like overly optimistic point of view on this, it's not wise. <laughs> you know, it's going to be it's going to be tough and we need to have some really difficult conversations which are, are of course being being had. That said, there is a kind of middle tier event that is thriving. I think it's very tough for super top heavy events, but there is a kind of middle tier event, which has always been for the real heads. Those people are thrilled to be back. They're in it. I think the pandemic is going to continue to hurt some people at the very top and it's going to continue to hurt some people at the very bottom. <laughs> there is a sweet spot. So we all need to be agile and to kind of, continue to use the information that we gained during lockdown to our advantage and make decisions about what needs to happen and what doesn't need to happen. That goes for everybody <laughs> in every level. But, you know, the high and the short of it is that the governments around the world need to pony up. <laughs> I'm like, I'm curious on a, on a kind of zoomed out level you know, you and I have had very similar experiences of these visceral, life-changing nightclub um, experiences that have really changed us and helped us to find our paths and helped us to figure out who we are as people. And I wonder if you don't have that as a teenager, you know, that experience of kind of collective euphoria, like where else do you get it? You get it where maybe a, you know, a football terrace uh, without the music, of course, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's so important for people to experience dancing in a room with people um, together. I do too. It's that, that same communion as playing instruments in a room together. I don't know. It just, it feels important and it's hard to articulate why it's important. I'm sure you'd be better at it than me, but like, you know, if we don't have nightclubs, what does a generation of people lose, I suppose? Well, the, the one thing I will say is that I, I suspect as a 43-year-old that there's a lot of stuff going on with 16-year-olds that I don't have any clue about. Absolutely. Just like my parents didn't have any clue 
what was going on with me. I mean, in the beginning of when I was going to raves, they didn't get busted because people didn't know what the hell they were. And I can remember when I was working at a party that was an illegal outdoor free 5,000 person party in Kentucky that was busted at one location and briefly moved into the middle of the city before we found a second location and having a police officer ride up to me on a horse and ask me what was going on. And I remember that my friend who was kind of the main organizer, he said, if anybody comes and asks you what's going on, just say this is for the University of Kentucky, the radio station, and that it's a conference of electronic composers. And I was, you know, I remember I was standing outside and I mean, you know, weed smoke everywhere. Like, I mean, it's like, yeah. this is an illegal yeah. party. I mean, the inside yeah. the venue, we, had, we, we were just holding 5,000 people in the middle of the city for the day. And everybody was kind of trying to crowd into this one art gallery. And there were so many people on the top floor that, that the ceiling below it was sagging. I mean, that's how many people were there. Incredibly dangerous, yeah. incredibly illegal, full of teenagers. And I hear, I hear the cop come up on the horse. If you're from Kentucky, cops on horses are everywhere. It's like we have the mounted police. It's a thing. They're just everywhere. Clip clop, clip clop. It's like a you. It's a sound that is just you. And I I could hear him pulling up behind me, and so, and he says, "Who's in charge of this?" And somebody goes, "Her." And of course, I'm 16, blue hair, Princess Leia things. You know, just brace, braces, braces. I had braces. I was so young. And I turn around, and the cops says, "What is this?" And I said. It's a convention of electronic music composers being put on by the University of Louisville radio station. <laughs> and the cop rides his horse off. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop. It was the most astonishing thing that's ever happened because they, had, they didn't know what a rave was. It was 1994. They, wouldn't, they didn't have any clue what was going on. And you got to figure... There's some version of that. One thing that I believe, as much as I believe anything in this world, is that you do have to trust the kids. And maybe my conception of that freedom isn't happening now, but I do believe that it is a biological impulse to create those zones of autonomy and ecstasy. Not the drug ecstasy, but like the other kind. Yeah, the, 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 the emotion. Right. Yeah. However it's happening, I'm sure that I am 100% not cool enough to know about it. <laughs> yes. Love that. Thank you to Maria for sharing her expertise and her experiences and her anecdotes in this conversation. Thank you also to our sponsors for this episode of Changes, Amazon Music. Um, And as I mentioned at the start, they have provided crucial reopening grants to numerous venues around the world. This is a conversation which doesn't stop here. I really hope that uh, in listening to it, you have been inspired in some way to maybe revisit a nightclub, to go book a ticket to a DJ playing near you, to arrange a night out with some friends, to buy some dancing shoes. We need to save our club culture, which is exactly that, culture. 
If you like this episode and you're into hearing people talking around music and change, then you must go back and listen to my conversation with Damon Albarn on this series. Also, my husband, Toddler T, and also Mel C, Sporty Spice herself. They've all featured on the series so far. Please don't forget to follow this podcast on Amazon Music and share it around. Changes is produced by Louise Mason. See you next time. And thank you.